Jesse, thanks for taking the time to uh, talk to me today about the new physics of financial services, which is uh, your most recent um, in-depth report about the use of AI and machine learning in financial services. So uh, what I'd like to do is um, maybe uh, take a step back and tell me a little bit more about you know, where you come from, what your mandate is within uh, the organization here, and talking also about the context of the whole you know, uh, report, where does it come from, and, and how do you want to position this, it would be helpful. Absolutely, and uh, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to chat about this. You're welcome. So, uh, I work for the World Economic Forum. We're a Swiss international organization for public-private cooperation. Uh, your listeners probably know us best for the fact that uh, every January we manage to get the uh, yes. the largest um, you know financial leaders and uh, and governmental leaders and somehow bring them up to the top of a mountain in the freezing cold in Switzerland to get them to chat about important issues of the day. Uh, and it'll be no surprise that for um, the last four or five years, new technology has been absolutely an area of focus. Um, and the area that I'm focused on, uh, financial services, where I'm the uh, financial innovation lead here at the World Economic Forum, uh, has increasingly been looking at an environment in which their operational structures, their competitive landscape, and the governance systems that they find themselves subject to have all been increasingly influenced by financial services. So really what my mandate is, is to try and map the uh, emerging trends that we're seeing in financial services and think a little bit more about what that means in terms of uh, where financial services is going and uh, what's going to be required to ensure that it's uh, playing its essential role in um, in the structure of the broader economy. Thank you, that's helpful. So, um, talk a little bit more about the context because we really also want to focus on this whole idea of AI and machine learning. I always use the two terms mm -hmm. you know, interchangeably, although obviously it's not the same, but um, why exactly focusing on that item? Where does this come from? Why not prioritizing regulation or something else? Why really AI and machine learning? Uh, why is it such a big issue in your so, view? So we've been hearing for about a year senior financial executives talking about how AI was going to transform their business. It was going to allow them to solve a lot of the the problems that they'd had for years, be able to serve their customers in new ways. And we thought, well, this is exactly the sort of area that we want to understand better. Uh, and very much to, to your point of using uh, AI and machine learning interchangeably, the first thing we figured it was probably a good idea to do was to figure out what the hell AI was. Exactly. And I think one of the most surprising things for me was that we did almost 200 interviews as part of this report, and not one person had the same definition of what AI was. Some people said, well, AI and machine learning are the same thing. Other people said, well, AI is much more than machine learning. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we found was that whenever we presented a really specific use case, mm -hmm. imagine if you could do X, um, you know, often very sort of far-flung ideas, you know, a one-click uh, mortgage origination uh, sure. process, much like how you one-click on Amazon, uh, insurance that... Uh, protects against risks, keeps risks from happening to you, mm -hmm. rather than uh, it pays you out if, uh, if, a, if a bad thing happens. Um, when we actually went into the nuts and bolts of how something like that might work with today's technology, people almost immediately said, well, 
that's not AI. Mm. That's uh, advanced automation. That's cognitive analytics. That's machine learning. That's deep learning. Exactly, exactly. And the funny thing was that it turns out that we had rediscovered a well-documented... uh, a well-documented um, tendency called the AI effect. Okay. Basically, that people's definition of what AI is moves based on what technology can deliver. And so 15 years ago, you might say, well, you know, if a computer could beat a grandmaster at chess, that would really be AI. You know, Kasparov gets beaten, we move on to something else. Well, if you could have a conversation with a with a computer, then that would be mm. AI. And so we've had a bit of a of a moving scale on this. But I think what we realized was that we didn't really care about what AI was. And and what I mean by that is that much more important than the underlying techniques for our readers was the capabilities that were being delivered. We realized early on that we would have almost no luck in predicting where new scientific developments were going. And so instead we wanted to focus on how the capabilities that exist today were getting absorbed into financial institutions and what were they were being used to do. Sure. What's the output? What are the results today? Or what are the things that we can achieve rather than what's eventually possible and, you know... And, and, talked about. and what we ended up doing was sort of casting a net around uh, a fairly large set of capabilities. Capabilities that were dynamic and predictive, that had some element of learning and self-improvement to them, that could do things like recognize patterns, predict the future, automate interactions with customers, make decisions, customize on the fly. And then we thought about how those were getting applied within financial institutions. And I think one of the interesting things was that they were getting used in a ton of ways. Right. Sometimes it was all about driving efficiency. It was about getting more with less. Sometimes it was about building whole new businesses. And there was no clean one-to-one relationship between the sophistication of underlying techniques and whether you were trying to just make things faster, smarter, or whether you were trying to build something entirely new. Right. And I think that's when we started to realize that while, while in many ways some of the techniques we were talking about wouldn't be considered AI by some of our readers, they were still going to be deeply influential to... Mm-hmm the future structure of the financial ecosystem. That's very helpful. So you, you laid out the context for, very well from you know where you came from, what you're trying to achieve here. It's obviously a very in-depth report. There's a lot in there, uh, which is great, by the way. Uh, yeah. But what I'd like to do is maybe go over some of the, as you call them, insights um, uh, that the whole research report brought to the table. And mm-hmm. I believe you split it up in four parts, four categories. Um, can you run me quickly through each one, starting with, you know, let's talk about operations, which is the first category that you talk about. What do you mean with AI and operations? And, you know, what is your observations there? Sure. First, just let me make one quick mention to how we actually built out this report, sure. the process behind it. Um, so we conducted, I think, 150, 160, maybe close to 200 interviews, uh, and we conducted workshops around the world where we brought together innovators, incumbents, and um, 
regulators to talk about the future of uh, of AI and financial services. And throughout the process, we dove deep into uh, six different subsectors, insurance, deposits right. and lending, investment management, capital markets, market infrastructure, uh, and payments. And thought about the specific trends that we were seeing there. And then we kind of tried to extrapolate that up right. to say, what are the cross-sector implications? And these um, sectors, by the way, if I may ask, are these sectors that were commonly accepted as different sectors, or is that really something that you guys sort of defined as, as the most obvious ones? So we've been working along that particular sector mapping for a while now. We produced uh, a large-scale report back in early 2014 on fintech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our thinking around that was we wanted to break the world of financial services up into functions, into the needs that were being met. Uh, And so we saw a need around payments facilitation, a need around uh, capital facilitation, a need around wealth advisory uh, and and investment management. And so we've really been running with that particular structure for for a little while now. Um, And we find that while it's not always the way that um, uh, the industry ends up being divvied up, uh, there are lots of times when you have mergers or combinations or, 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 or... uh, cross collaboration across businesses, it really reflects in many ways the ways that, that consumers, whether they be uh, businesses or individuals, think about uh, how their financial world right. gets divvied up into pieces. Right. Okay, so we start with operations um, as as one of these insights, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the subtitles there, or the subtitle, is from monolithic to modular. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can expand a little bit on that. Absolutely. So I think that this is a. I think that we have a really interesting story that's evolving around operations and financial services. And at the end of the day, operations is really the starting point for everything that gets delivered. And if you think about it, financial institutions have been operationally limited for quite some time now. In many ways, they were amongst the first corporates to really dive into the world of information technology. And the result is that many of them today are saddled with these deeply inflexible legacy systems. Sure. 40 and 50 years old. Uh, with still all green screens in some still cases. Green screens. I remember I used to be a financial <laughs> services consultant. I remember uh-huh. straight out of university. My yeah. first day on the job was with a large insurer. And I walked into a warehouse mm. with uh, maybe 150 guys, uh, all over the age of 65, typing away at computers. Right. And I said, well, right. what's, what's going on here? Uh, and you know, those were the only people who still knew how to code in COBOL. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, we thought for a long yeah. time that we were going to have escaped from COBOL. Uh, and it used to be that the plan was that you were going to patch the systems, uh, add a little functionality here or there, and five years down the road, there was on a, on on the roadmap. There was a, we're going to do a, a legacy core replacement. Going to be a rip and replace. Going to cost two or three billion dollars, and it's got about a one in three chance of success. You know, not exactly the sort of thing that the average CEO wants to take on right. in their tenure. So there was a tendency to you know push it, sure. push it a little. Sure. You know, you know, because it was it was hard to justify an investment mm-hmm. that big at that risk. Um, and over the last few years, we've really seen a shift in the way that people think about their legacy infrastructure. Uh, and there's much more of a willingness now to take 
individual pieces of operations, carve them out, and rebuild them for the cloud. Hmm. Uh, more flexible, more modular, more scalable. And this is a big shift. I remember when we first started doing interviews for our fintech work back in 2013, I sat down with the CEO of a very large uh, Fortune 100 financial institution who said, we will never in a million years go off-prem. Sure. Turns out it took about three or four as opposed to a million. Um, but you know the whole, the whole ecosystem has really shifted the way that it thinks about computing. And so you might ask, okay, what, is, what does this have to do with AI? Well, it means that financial institutions are increasingly willing to be plug or play, plug and play about their operations, right. willing to plug in third-party scalable as-a-service providers um, for the things that they're not terribly good at. And that means also that if there's an area where as a financial institution that you are good at, there's an opportunity to build a business out of it. Uh, my favorite example of this is in China, mm -hmm. Ping An. Ping An has all of this cool, you know, to, to us in the West, a very futuristic looking technology. It's all been built in their proprietary cloud. Uh, you know, they've got things to do automated claims on car insurance. They've got things to do uh, micro gesture facial recognition around uh, loan origination. Really cool stuff. But they haven't just kept it to themselves. They've created it on an as-a-service basis, and right. they now share those modules with hundreds of second- and third-tier banks mm -hmm. in China. And the benefit of that is twofold. On one hand, they've turned a cost center into a profit center. No AI there. On the other hand, they've drastically expanded the breadth and the volume of training data for those systems. Which is the goal of uh, AI and Ex machine learning, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. So <clears throat> they are able then to create a business model wherein by providing a scalable as-a-service offering to the rest of the industry, they create a self-reinforcing cycle sure. of data. Because ultimately what we learned is that the algorithms for most of this stuff are relatively commoditized in the open okay. source community. What's differentiated is access to data. Yeah. And so when you look at Pingon's service called OneConnect, if you look at BlackRock's Aladdin offering, effectively a risk management tool for, uh, for investment managers that's used by 10% of insurance assets and I think 15% of asset management assets in the world, some very large sums, uh, they've managed to create these really successful offerings. And so I think that over time, we're going to see a significant increase in these offerings. Because if you can be first to market around sure. delivering something like this, sure. the virtuous data cycle allows you to entrench an advantage in terms of capabilities. Well, I have a couple of questions there, if I may yeah. challenge you. Please. Um, you obviously have a worldwide view, so thinking about the amounts of money that China is investing in AI, which is vastly more and more rapidly deployed than in the US, and the huge number, bigger number of data sets that they have per definition by the population size mm -hmm. versus the US, um, there seems to be a, a, a large sort of um, advance 
-hmm. of China versus the U.S. So I wanted to have your view briefly on that, where where you think this is going, and is this not sort of a competitive disadvantage down the road? And then, um, uh, yeah, let's let's start there. Yeah, for sure. So I think China is a really interesting place right now. I think that China has, in many ways, in terms of the sophistication of the retail financial offerings, has leapt ahead of the West. And I think part of that is because um, the value proposition on making a rapid shift was much larger. If you think about uh, mobile payments, sure. for example, penetration is much higher in China. Part of that is simply because um, the shift from cash to mobile payments sure. is a really obvious one. From cards to mobile payments, it's a little harder to make that case with individuals. Um, in terms of AI, we've seen a much greater, a much faster penetration of AI into, or the use of AI in financial services in China. Part of that is that so many of these things are, uh, from an architectural perspective, built for the cloud. AI and machine learning works best in a cloud environment. Sure. Uh, and so I think there are some advantages there in terms of having rubber hit the road faster. There are also advantages in terms of willingness to share data, that uh, data protection laws are ultimately uh, somewhat more lax in Correct. China, yeah. and that uh, from the limited discussions we've had, that Chinese uh, consumers and businesses are more willing to share their data in exchange for, uh, for the benefits that they're receiving. Ultimately, there are still potentially some advantages in the United States around, particularly in Silicon Valley, the concentration of uh, advanced academic talent. That's something of a, of a topic of debate at the moment. Um, but I think you're right. I think, there are, I think that uh, we need to watch closely. Uh, China, I think, is emerging as something of an AI superpower. Sure. Um, and I know that uh, some of the colleagues that we've spoken to in Europe are concerned about the implications of this. Right. Um, one example being um, insurers in Europe are uh, fairly closely constrained by things like GDPR, mm. and they have concerns that models trained in China might be translocated sure. uh, to operate in um, uh, in Europe, and that would be place them at a competitive disadvantage. Um, that's still a matter of quite some debate. Uh, we heard a lot of people be extremely skeptical that that type of translocation of model from China to Europe would actually be effective. Mm. Um, but I think there are some, some serious competitive and regulatory questions uh, that are going to get raised over the coming decade. And then quickly, I don't want to, you know, again, we have a lot to cover here, but it's so exciting. Uh, lots of questions here. Um, China, U.S., one thing. But the other thing is also that you mentioned that banks, large financial institutions increasingly are open to use this technology and, and, and you know, decouple some of the modules and, and, mm -hmm. and third-party vendors. Um, I do feel that there is still, um, compared to the U.K., for instance, that... Uh, around fintech development and, and also the regulatory environment in the UK compared to the US, uh, again, is more advanced, is more flexible, and, and I think has, uh, as a result, has a, a fintech sort of lay of the land that I think has an edge also over the US. How, uh, is, is your sense that that is a, an accurate description? or Because or, mm. I have a feel that, that a lot of financial institutions here talk a bit game, but in my personal experience, it's still um, 
way of effectively implementing and mm -hmm. it's it, it takes really a long 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 time before anything moves you know and the bigger the financial institutions the, the slower it goes uh, again compared to you know in the UK where the government actually has actively participated in mm -hmm. some you know sandbox you know initiatives uh, government business banks and and really trying to make the country much more competitive to to open that fintech kind of space versus the US anyway I just wanted to have quickly yeah your, i think that i think that there. that's a i think that's a very reasonable perspective reasonable perspective. Things that I would say that I've seen, uh, the regulatory landscape in the United Kingdom directly promotes competition. Uh, and across Europe, I think that the the prevalence uh, or the, the advent, if you will, of open banking uh, legislation in the UK of PSD2 in Europe fundamentally placed some pressure on financial institutions. Um, I think that there's a really clear sense in which the FCA, through their collaborations with FinTech, has communicated that financial institutions will need to be competitive and will need to seek new ways of providing value to their customers. In the US, I think that the uh, messaging has been less clear. Mm. Um, in particular, I think the fact that the regulatory landscape here is somewhat more convoluted, uh, and that in particular, there seems to be no significant push towards some type of open data regime right. that would actually, um, that could actually enable disintermediation. Sure. And so you don't hear uh, in your dialogue with financial institutions in the US the same sort of uh, imperative to quote unquote become a platform as has become very common in, uh, in Europe. Um, I don't think that that means that financial institutions in the US aren't taking the need to change seriously, but they're very large institutions and those changes uh, take time. Wonderful, why don't we switch to the next um, category of insights, if I, if I may call them like that. Mm -hmm. We talk about customer experience and the um, uh, the subtitle there is from um, mass production to tailor-made, mm -hmm. right? So if you want to expand a little bit on that, it would be helpful. Sure. So I think that um, you know, we, had a, we had a great conversation with uh, Dave Mackay, the CEO of RBC. Right. And one of the things that he talked about that I really liked was he said, look, what are the... What's the way traditionally that financial institutions have differentiated themselves? We've differentiated ourselves based on speed and price. So, uh, you know, you, you're um, a corporate, an individual, you need a loan, you know, a revolving line of credit, a mortgage. Uh, well, let me tell you, I can get that to you at a great price and I can fulfill it uh, a week from now. Yeah, how's that sound? Well, okay, well, now... Now the pricing's getting a little bit more competitive. Now the operations are getting a little bit more competitive. Maybe now we can get it at an even better price in two days instead of a week. That's kind of the beginning of something of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a race to the bottom. Right. Um, particularly if you think about what I was just talking about, which is the advent of as a, as a service providers, I don't want to suggest that that's going to happen overnight, but over time it's easy to imagine 
operational excellence in many ways becoming table stakes. Sure. I think in a lot of areas around consumer lending, we're already yeah. sort of seeing that. Pretty commoditized. Um, at the same time, we're also seeing, whether it's through platforms enabled by open data or just uh, you know, scraping techniques and aggregators, we're seeing cross comparability of pricing is becoming much easier. You know, if you think about yeah. it, once upon a time, maybe you need to go to five different branches to get five different mortgage quotes. Today, you can hop online, use an aggregator, or even just sort of go sure. to a few different banks and get quotes. So that price discovery cost is really falling. And so I think what we're going to see moving forward is more and more pressure by financial institutions to figure out a way to differentiate themselves some other way. Because unless you're the scale provider, unless you can really offer the low-cost offering, you know, if you're, if you're Vanguard or in the, in the fund space or something like that, maybe you can just keep going this way. But otherwise, you need to provide some other type of value. And that's where I think that our broad definition of AI comes into play. The ability to customize on the fly. So instead of having five lending products on the shelf, being able to create something customized to the needs of, the, of a small business, for example. Being able to provide advisory and assistance. Uh, being able to provide interlinkages with a life beyond that of financial services. And we kind of tried to, to give a name to our view of where ultimately you could go with this, which was self-driving finance. Sure. And for us, self-driving finance means, on one hand, having optimization happening constantly in the background that is to some degree below the threshold of perception. Right, you know, getting me from uh, you know one money market product to a slightly better one. Uh, you know, optimizing my savings account rate. You know, re um, reconsolidating some some debt. Sure. On and on, uh, and then on the other hand, helping be there with the right data and the right insights when I need to make a critical financial decision. So we're seeing increased appetite in this space around things like personal financial managers. Right. Clarity Money, which was just acquired by Goldman Sachs sure. to integrate into their Marcus platform, a great example of this. It doesn't just track your spend. It will track down subscriptions that you have, and then it'll go and cancel those subscriptions for you. I think, although I'd need to check this, that it'll even go and you know, help renegotiate your cell phone bill for you, things right. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the honest truth is that none of these PFMs are really quite working at the level of what we'd call self-driving finance yet, but the direction of travel is clear. And you can start to see how those who hold the customer data and who were able to combine financial and non-financial data are able to provide some really differentiating value. I always like to think about um, a, uh, a small business why does a small business go out and get a revolving line of credit when you could, with the right data, provide them a liquidity solution? Effectively, something that's investing their money when they have too much of it, that's mm -hmm. providing them with the credit that they need to grow, that understands better than they do the seasonality and the, the dynamic trends of their industry. But that's already happening, right? You have companies yeah. like Cabbage, which, which, is, which is a small business lender, and, and in a, a recent presentation, they, they said like 99.5% of our applications are, you know, not, not a human 
mm. touch of the application. Yeah. And um, more than 50% or 60 or 70% of their personnel are data engineers and data scientists. So mm -hmm. because they know everything about the business, yeah. they can automatically, you know, proactively, seasonality-wise, yeah. you know, anticipate, all driven by AI and machine learning, by the way, because mm -hmm. they, they know and they learn, they get better over time. I think it's a perfect example from, from you know, what you're highlighting here. I do have one question, though, sure. which, uh, uh, and again, it may, it may come up, uh, it has an impact on the other levels as well, but the competitive landscapes with, with massive players like the Googles, the Facebooks, you know, the Amazons of this world that are massively investing in AI and machine learning because it pretty much drives everything they do. Mm -hmm. They, per definition, will always know so much more and have so much better information uh, of everyone and every business. They can outcompete anyone in every single industry, which is kind of a, a scary thought in some way. So how do you feel about you know, the, the, the competitive landscapes with some of these dominance com dominant companies that are really sort of worrying some people uh, where this can drive them? Mm -hmm. So first I'll say that I'm not entirely convinced of the utter dominance of, uh, of, the, of the Googles of the world in this space. And that's because they don't always have access to all of the data that's required to be specialized in, in every area. Because AI today isn't a general thing, it's a, it's a use-specific application. Correct. You train to do something very specific. And so I think that there's no doubt, for example, that in the area of image recognition or maybe uh, natural language processing, the large tech companies have an enormous advantage. They have that advantage because they have built systems that provide them incredibly deep and rich data flows. But financial data, and this is particular to the Western context, it's a little bit different in Asia, but is in many ways has been maintained in a separate stream. Mm. And so there's a power to combining that financial data with other data. If you think about something like Penguin's One Connect or BlackRock's Aladdin, I don't think that Facebook or Google would be particularly well positioned to build something like that because they don't have a pre-existing flow of, say, wholesale trade data. Sure. And so I think for particular applications, you're going to see, um, you're going to see institutions that are advantaged to spin those out. In some cases, it'll be big techs. In some cases, it'll be large financial institutions. But you're right that inevitably we do trend towards a world in which there are significant returns to scale mm -hmm. for those who have data because you're able to set up these virtuous loops exactly. that allow you to entrench the position and I think that it's an open question today what is the appropriate competitive policy for addressing that so in your conversations globally uh, during those interviews is that something that came up on a regular basis that people were somewhat worried at least were or, or asking questions on on with some of these bigger companies? Um, I think the that there is, there's and... absolutely a concern about this. Financial institutions are concerned that um, uh, the tech companies will make a play for the customer experience sure. layer and will attempt to disintermediate them and relegate them into a role of product manufacturers. Uh, and there is a long tail risk that I think people recognize that over time we may trend towards an area in which you have 
large scalable service providers uh, that are critical to financial operations and exert significant market power. But the reality is, is that we're not one or two years away sure. from being there. We're many more where we saw a more immediate set of risks uh, and where people displayed a more immediate concern was in the operational risk landscape right. of financial services. That financial institutions are moving from monolithic, vertically integrated institutions where the vast majority of stuff is kept inside to much more networked institutions. Sure. They're using the cloud, they're using scalable service providers in the cloud, they're being forced to open up their data to third parties under open data regulations. This creates a significantly larger threat surface. It creates exposure to cyber attacks. It creates exposure to unexpected implications of failure. So if multiple cloud providers were to fail at the same time, are there risks of cascade effects into right. the financial system? Uh, to be honest, that's not something that's been explored in great detail yet, but we had a number of, uh, of participants in our discussion saying, we need to be doing fire drills to understand what the risk of contagion is when these new operating models encounter unexpected difficulties. Wonderful. So why don't we move to the third insight um, coming out of the report. Um, we talk about data strategy, and the subtitle there is From Data Stocks to Data Flows. Again, um, expand a little bit on that if you want. Yeah, and I think we've touched this already mm -hmm. a fair bit in the conversation, but I think um, you know, if I go back to early in this discussion, and you hear this less now, but I used to always hear senior financial services executives say, data, well, we've got lots of data. We don't need to worry about that. You know, we just need to figure out how to use it. And there was kind of this narrative sometimes that you heard where people imagined that you could drop an AI in from the top yeah. of the organization, and it would just, you know, right. it would sort out the data for you. And when I say sort out, I mean that the data is a mess. Yes. Uh, really, and that's, that's across almost every financial institution. It is siloed. It is, uh, it is dirty. Uh, yep. It is not always in a position that can be used for you know, high, high things not. like yep. uh, uh, regulatory compliance. It's not, it's not suited today uh, to be used to feed machine learning. Yep. Um, and that's a real challenge. Um, more than that, though, it's that machine learning isn't just about, you know, drop it in a data lake and call it a day. As we've already been talking about, it's about creating that self-reinforcing cycle, right? So if you think about the model of a company like uh, Facebook, it's very different from the model of a traditional financial institution. Sure. For a traditional financial institution, data is a byproduct of the core business, the core business of sending payments, of originating loans, et cetera, et cetera. It is a necessary, um, it is a necessary byproduct uh, that increasingly is viewed as having value to the organization. You know, a Facebook thinks about data entirely differently. The platform, the product, exists so as to create more data. Uh, and then to find ways of monetizing that data in the case of Facebook as an advertising platform. 
So I think there's a sense in which you're seeing financial institutions start to turn the corner on thinking about how they can specifically design financial products in order to generate data of value and how they can think about not just generating data but expanding the breadth of data because in many ways the financial data held by these institutions is extremely narrow. Sure, you might have 20 years of payments around me, but do you know anything about where those payments were made, the context in which they're made, who they were made with? This is important information if you want to start to try to deliver things like self-driving finance. And so the obvious venue to go is to start to redesign your systems, but also to think about data partnerships. And so there are a growing number of examples in which these data partnerships can be used to provide increased visibility. Um, you know, recent example of MasterCard and Google sure. bringing data together in some really interesting ways. The challenge, though, around those partnerships is that while they may be mutually beneficial, they are not necessarily equally beneficial. And in an environment of open data, you see people increasingly thinking about the difference between being at the hub and at the spoke of data. Um, Machine learning creates a value of a gravity of data, of pulling all of a customer's data to a single point and being able to create uh, a a valuable set of experiences based on that. Um, And so suddenly things like PSD2 start to feel like they're disadvantageous to financial institutions because it creates an obligation for the financial institution to send data out, but no reciprocal set of data, uh, of of obligations that they can use to bring data in. Uh, And that's, I think, a really challenging thing for financial institutions and in jurisdictions where... um, open data is coming down the pipe but not yet implemented like Canada and Australia, Mm -hmm. you can bet people are thinking hard about how not to end up in a similar situation. Got it. Very uh, very interesting. Um, We come to the fourth level, um, talking about market structure, uh, the fourth insight. We also touched already upon that somewhat. Mm -hmm. Um, Subtitle there is from from verticalized silos to horizontal platforms. Again, give, can you give me some more sort of insights on uh, other than what we already discussed? Um, what you mean by that first, you know, fourth insight coming yeah. out of the report? Yeah. So I think we've known for a while that a platform model in financial services is, in, in many ways, potentially the most disruptive thing that could happen. Um, particularly if you think about it as a world in which you have a, a quote-unquote an Amazon for financial services, right? Uh, a world in which uh, I have a platform that I interact with as a business or an individual uh, that provides me with uh, access to financial products and services from many different providers. That creates a radically different set of economics for manufacturers. Uh, I like to say that it suddenly becomes uh, to the manufacturer of financial products like they're an app in the app store. It's important to be at the top of the list. It's important to be in the featured bar. You need to be thinking about your search engine optimization within the platform. 
And that's just a radically different way of thinking about financial services. And it ultimately either rewards scale players who can uh, deliver uh, products at extremely low cost, or it rewards agile players who are able to customize products to particular individuals. I think where the AI starts to come in as a clear element of this is that the most logical place to put a self-driving agent is within the customer platform. Mm. It creates a reason for the customer to bring more and more data to the platform, and it gives that platform more and more power to extract rents from within the broader financial services ecosystem. There's a fantastic article from a partner at Greylock called Mm -hmm. The New Moats that Mm. talks about the shift from a system of record to a system of experience. Uh, The self-driving agent, in many ways, the platform starts as a system of experience. Uh, And then you go from a system of experience to a system of intelligence. And that is that the platform, by virtue of being the hub that data flows through, is able to become more and more intelligent in terms of its advisory of products to the individual and its provision of financial insights that are specifically tied to them. It creates a deeply tied relationship in theory, such that instead of today where you might not change banks because you uh, you have significant switching costs, mm-hmm. you don't want to change financial platforms. You don't want to switch to a new uh, self-driving finance agent because this one understands you so well and you don't want to go through sure. the challenge of, uh, of training another one. So it's almost less being kept in and more wanting to stay. Wonderful. Um, so we've, we've covered the, basically the four sort of insights that um, you uh, summarized coming out of the report, uh, really coming to basically the bottom line uh, where the report talks about implications of all this at three different levels. There is implications at the level of financial institutions, there is you know, implications at the level of customers, and mm-hmm. then there is implication at the level of regulators. Um, for each of these, what's sort of the, the, the main takeaway for you, sort of in a nutshell, coming out of the report, again, after your work, uh, both for FIs, for customers, and for regulators, what's, what's sort of the you know, number one thought or the thing that you want readers or, or people to take away from that? Sure. Well, let's start with the customer, because increasingly, I think the customer uh, hopefully is starting to become more and more the center of the financial world. We've lived in a product-centric financial system for a long time now. Um, In China, it seems increasingly like they're getting towards customer centricity. My hope is that over the next five to seven years, we're going to see more and more customer centricity. And I think that overall, AI means good things for financial consumers. It means that in addition to having products that are uh, more efficiently and more quickly delivered, it means systems that understand you, that are able to create value in new and interesting ways. You're able to get advice at, uh, at, um, uh, at a lower cost. So right. if you think about the early days of robo-advisory, I mean, those those platforms weren't doing anything particularly significant, but compared to having no advice at all, it was a significant step up. And so I think we're now seeing uh, the next and perhaps the next, next level of that. 
the downside for consumers is that data is a critical input to running these systems and in most environments we still don't live in an area in a in an architecture in which it is easy to control the movement of our data and so ensuring that there isn't disparate impact and bias in these systems is going to be absolutely critical. But at an even more macro level, giving individual users the ability to control where their data goes and how that data is used, what I would broadly put under the banner of digital identity, becomes more and more critical in an environment that is permeated by AI, and in particular in an environment that is permeated by the combination of AI and open, highly mobile data. Well, talking about uh, ownership of data, um, maybe as a, as a sidestep here, but how do you see developments in, in uh, blockchain technology and DLT technologies in, in, in particular um, impact this specific area about you know, ownership of, of data? Does, mm-hmm. does, does it help? Does, is this going to you know, improve that process or, or is it something that that came up during your research or, or not really? It, it is, it is, and personally I think that it's a, it's, it's a powerful and interesting technology that may be an important component of setting the rails for new um, data and identity operating models. But for me what's even more important is the existence of uh, things like zero-knowledge proofs. Mm-hmm, sure. So I think that even more important than whether a system is distributed federated or centralized is the privacy protections that it puts in place and to to use a sort of a commonly discussed and and very simple uh, example it's about making the transition from today uh, walking into a bar and needing to verify my identity with a card that contains an assortment of information about me including my date of birth my height and my weight to one in which instead simply a an attestation is made from sure. a credible party that can be interrogated by the bartender and can be seen to that I am above whatever the required age of the jurisdiction is. And so we're seeing more and more efforts to create systems like that. There's a really interesting um, uh, effort in Canada right now that's a federated system owned by the or federated system being used by the big five banks uh, around data verification. It has some of the uh, IBM Fabric uh, blockchain technology uh, at its core, Mm -hmm. but I think what's really important is this privacy preservation in terms of the transmission of attributes. Perfect. So that's at the level of the customers, um, and and rightfully so at the middle of of the importance here. Um, Any thoughts about uh, specific implications again as a wrap up here uh, with regard to financial institutions and also regulators. What are the biggest yeah. takeaways there? So I think that for financial institutions, they're making a transition into a world where financial services is fundamentally more networked. So increasingly, I think we're going to see financial institutions look at the long list of things that they do and say, which of these are things that we want to find a way to, to outsource, to externalize, uh, to some scalable as a service provider. And where are the areas where we think we actually have an advantage, where we can take a center of excellence and build machine learning into that and start to spin up our own virtuous data cycle? 
At the same time, I think they're going to be thinking more and more about what it is that their customers and what particular sub-segments of their customers want and figuring out how they can deploy um, uh, automated customization, automated advisory in the service of more deeply engaging those customers. And then on the regulatory level, I think there are a lot of things to think about. I think there are, there are questions about how to measure and how to defend against the operational risk of a more networked financial system. That's cyber, but it's also, I think, bigger than that. I think there are important discussions that are ongoing around uh, interpretability of models, when is it and isn't it important, uh, and um, bias in models, how do we make sure that bias is uh, as limited as possible or, or doesn't have detrimental effects on, uh, on certain subsets of society. And then I think also really interesting, uh, and only at the very early stages of being discussed, is what is suitability law in an environment in which complex advisory is being made mm -hmm. by automated entities. Sure. So what constitutes mis-selling? Right. Um, what constitutes a fiduciary obligation when it's a machine? Yep. Uh, these are important questions and I think they're really quickly going to become uh, important ones for regulators and financial institutions to come together on because it's going to be such an important part of how financial institutions differentiate themselves. Wonderful. Um, I think we've covered quite a bit of ground here, so thanks, thanks for that. Um, I'd love to finish off with, with really asking you what, personally, what struck you the most in, in sort of your research for this, for this report, uh, both on the sort of the, the positive side, makes you most hopeful on what's going on, and maybe what gives you also reason for concern uh, and things that we have to be you know, uh, cautious of or mm -hmm. careful. So I think for me, reason for concern um, is really about we're moving quickly. How do we understand the new risks of a financial model that's fundamentally changing and that's diverging around the world? If you think about uh, systemic uh, risk, it's typically about size, interconnectedness, and leverage. We had the last crisis, which was really founded around leverage in the financial system, and it, and it quite simply got too high and too concentrated. Um, what I worry about, you know, at the 10-year anniversary of the global financial crisis yep. is as the financial environment becomes more interconnected and networked in ways that we maybe won't always understand the implications of, as the size of certain service providers, whether they be providers of specialized services or of cloud computation generally, become larger, are there significant risks of unexpected implications? And this becomes even more complicated when you look at the way that financial systems in uh, the United States, Europe, and China are diverging from one another. Mm. Regulation of open data uh, is sending, I think, Europe in a different direction than uh, here in the United States. Uh, and China has built something uh, that is itself entirely different. And so if you think back to 2008, a critical 
aspect of what kept the financial crisis from being even worse than it was was the ability of central banks and prudential regulators to coordinate with one another. That coordination was predicated on an understanding that the systems that they ran were relatively similar to one Mm -hmm. another. As the systems and their structures diverge, their vulnerabilities will diverge, Mm -hmm. and it will require much more work to make sure that we understand each other. On the positive side, I think the positive story is ultimately the promise for the consumer, and particularly for, well, not, not just the consumer really, but for, for individual consumers and small businesses. These are institutions that have traditionally been rather limited in terms of their access to some of the higher functions of financial services. Um, Your average individual doesn't get to have a private banker doing treasury management for them. The average small business is lucky to get a loan on a decent set of terms, isn't necessarily getting um, specialized and customized advice on what the right type of lending product or lending strategy is for them. And uh, that's been because, uh, quite simply, uh, human beings uh, aren't scalable and you know their time is valuable as we get into a space in which more and more sophisticated advice can be paired with customized on the fly product development i think individuals and customer and individuals and small businesses will find themselves uh, in a better financial position potentially uh, if you think about the fact that in the United States, uh, many households uh, are not well prepared to endure, say, uh, an unexpected uh, $1,000 expense. If you think about the fact that most small businesses that go bankrupt do so due to uh, challenges around liquidity, I think there's an opportunity for these types of systems to make a really significant impact in in rectifying those issues. Great, then maybe final question. How, how would you like to see this, this research, this output really influence um, regulators or businesses or people? How, how do you see that play out? What, what sort of like in 12, 18 months from now, what would you like to you know, see happening ideally or, or, or have this research drive certain discussions? So I think that the the answer to that is twofold. You know, people look at a, at a 165 or 180-page report, however long it is, and sometimes it can be a little bit intimidating. Sure. But we're, we're always really trying to structure them such that people can get right to the information that matters for them. And so I guess that my hope is ultimately twofold, that those who are in the private sector will look through this document and they'll come away with some ideas, Mm -hmm. some ideas about how they can serve their customers better, how they can build something new, how they can respond in a constructive way to the challenging uh, competitive landscape that they're increasingly finding themselves within. And on the regulatory side, hopefully helping them to understand the changes that they're seeing uh, uh, in terms of the institutions that they regulate and help them to to get ahead of thinking about what some of the risks that sit on the horizon might be. And, uh, And hopefully that means, at least in part, convening dialogues with the private sector around what the the best principled solutions are to these problems before they're actually on our doorstep. 
Well, wonderful, Jesse. Thanks again for this, you know, wonderful conversation. Congratulations on the report. And I think what we should do is maybe in, in 12 or 18 months from now, sit together again and look back at the work that's been done and, and kind of the conversations that has been happening in the market and the progress that we've made, if that's okay with you. That sounds absolutely wonderful. Thanks so much for taking the time. Well, thank you very much. Take care.